Good evening, everyone. Is this hot? Yeah. Good evening, everyone. My name is Arkan Fung, and I'm the acting dean of the Kennedy School. I'm delighted to welcome you tonight to this evening's event, Nordic Solutions and Challenges, a Danish Perspective. Before I introduce tonight's honored guest, I want to thank the Institute of Politics for making this and many other conversations possible here in the JFK Junior Forum. We're very lucky tonight to have His Excellency Lars Logo Rasmussen joining us. He's just gotten off the plane from Logan Airport, and so uh, we'll uh, try to keep him awake with some lively questions tonight. He was recently elected Prime Minister in June of 2015, and he is le the leader of the center-right Liberal Party, the Venstra. Prime Minister, the Prime Minister has a long record of public service to the people of Denmark. After receiving his Master of Laws degree from the University of Copenhagen, he began his career in Danish Parliament in 1994. From 1998 to 2001, he served as the County Mayor of Fredericksburg, and in 2001, he became the Minister for Interior and Health. As the Minister, he was responsible for negotiating a 2002 agreement between the parties giving patients in public hospitals the right to select a private hospital for their care. He also represented the government during negotiation, negotiations for a tax-based sharing arrangement in which richer municipalities would transfer part of their revenues to poorer ones. We could use some of that tax-based sharing in many regions in the United States. Uh, the Prime Minister later became Minister of Finance and served in that capacity from 2007 to 2009. And during that time, he helped Denmark's people and its banks navigate the difficult global financial crisis. In 2009 to 2011, he served as Prime Minister for the first time, then returned to the private sector for a few years, and then saw the light and returned to public life and politics. In 2015, he led his party to victory again in the general election in June. He also founded the Logofunden, an organization that provides much-needed support to at-risk youth. Prime Minister Rasmussen leads one of the most successful countries in the world. In my view, the system of Scandinavian social democracy, small s, small d, is one of the crowning achievements of the human race. I really do think that. Denmark and other Scandinavian societies have managed to combine the values of equality, liberty, and democracy as few other societies have managed to do. Denmark is consistently among the top countries in the world on measures of the quality of democracy and the lack of corruption. It's number one on Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index. Danes enjoy a high standard of living, and the country ranks highly in numerous comparisons of national performance, including education, gender, uh, gender equality, health care, prosperity, and human development. Denmark is frequently ranked as one of the happiest countries in the world in cross-national studies. Perhaps that's the most important metric. And the country has, uh, ranks as having the world's highest social mobility, a high level of income equality, and one of the world's highest per capita incomes um, as well. Perhaps for the first time in American politics, a major presidential candidate suggested that the United States might learn a thing or two from the experience of Denmark. Of course, shortly after that, another major presidential candidate dismissed that notion, and we'll talk more about that tonight. However, while it is not exactly the case, as the Bard wrote, that there is something rotten in the state of Denmark, the country nevertheless faces some daunting challenges around finance, taxation, economy, and of, co uh, of course, immigration. Tonight, the Prime Minister will update us on the current state of affairs in Denmark. He'll take a few questions from the audience, 
and perhaps we'll learn whether the United States and other countries do indeed have a thing or two to learn from Denmark. Please help me welcome Prime Minister Rasmussen. Good evening, everybody. And by good evening, I really mean good evening, uh, because it's past midnight. <clears throat> I just arrived from Iceland, where we have had a, a meeting in a forum called Northern Future Forum with the Prime Minister David Cameron and the Prime Ministers from uh, Latvia, Estonia, uh, Lithuania, and the Nordic countries, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Iceland. But I will do my best uh, to to um, to be um, not not to fall asleep. That was the intention I was saying. <laughs> and if I can stay awake, hopefully you can as well. But first of all, thank you very much for 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 for, for inviting me to speak here tonight. It is indeed a, a real pleasure to stand here before such a fine group of future world leaders. I understand that uh, Harvard's alumni include eight U.S. presidents, several heads of states, and 62 living billionaires. Uh, and um, the reason why I'm here is also that I'm going to visit my son, Bergo, who is sitting at the first uh, line here, uh, and uh, who is studying at Harvard this semester. So Bergo, keeping this list in mind, I, I do have great expectations for your future. <laughs> It would indeed be night with a billionaire in the family. Um, I mean, I'm the heads of state, so uh, we have already a check mark there. Uh, well, uh, it is, uh, as the dean mentioned, uh, or a, a great time for Danes to visit the United States. A few weeks ago, the democratic encounter in Las Vegas took a surprising turn. Denmark entered the presidential race. But this is not why not why I'm here. I have absolutely no wish to interfere in the presidential uh, debate in, in US. However, I am of course always delighted to share thoughts on, on, on Denmark. I guess we all love talking about things close to our hearts and, and, and Denmark is definitely for natural reasons uh, close to my heart. It is definitely not a perfect country, uh, but it is close to perhaps. A according to my opinion, it is definitely among the best countries in the world. It is a small country indeed, uh, 5.7 million uh, people, but I believe that we have created a both rich and harmonious society. I represent a, a party to the right in the Danish political spectrum, a center-right party, um, and I became prime minister again this summer after almost four years with a center-left government. But I imagine that our political differences in Denmark appear minor from your perspective. I just told you that many Danish parties regard themselves as sister parties to the Democratic Party in, 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 in US. So when we joined the convention, I, I did that four years ago, it was together with the opposition in, in, in Denmark. We all went to the same US convention. And that gives perhaps you an idea of, of, of how minor differences are in, 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 in a Danish perspective compared with other countries. 
I know that uh, some people in, in the US associate the Nordic model with some sort of socialism. Therefore, I would like to make one thing uh, clear. Uh, Denmark is uh, far from a socialist plant economy. Denmark is a market economy. The Nordic model uh, is an expanded welfare state which provides a high level of security for its citizens. But it is also a successful market economy with much freedom to pursue your dreams and live your life as you wish. But what does it mean to have a welfare state, you could ask? Well, for instance, we have universal health coverage. You don't pay to see your doctor or, or, or go to the hospital. We have a high degree of social security. You are entitled to benefits if you lose your job, if you get sick, if you are disabled. We have one year of maternity leave. We have uh, subsidized early childhood education and care. And we ensure care for our elderly if they cannot manage on their own. We also have a strong and uh, free educational system. Students in institutions for higher education and universities don't pay tuition. On the contrary, they receive educational grants for, for studying. So what is the catch, you could ask? And the most obvious one is, of course, the high taxes. The top income tax in Denmark is almost 60%. We have a 25% sales tax, and on cars, the excise duties is up to 180%. So in total, Danish taxes come to almost half of our national income compared to around 25% in the US. Quite a substantial difference, you could say. And now perhaps you may think, how is this even possible? Is it really viable to, to run a country with such a high level of taxation? Can anyone afford to buy a car? Yes, absolutely. We have plenty of cars in the streets, <laughs> although some might be smaller than here in the US. <laughs> so let me reassure you, Denmark is doing rather well if you look at most economic parameters. Among OECD countries, Denmark has the highest degree of income equality. US uh, ranks number 31. We are one of the most prosperous countries in the world. It is true that public services are, are generous, but our taxes are high. We are not overspending. We are one of only nine countries in the world with a triple A rating of public finances. We work fewer hours per year than in most countries. We have six weeks of paid holiday a year, but there are more of us on the labor market than on average among OECD countries. Denmark is one of the countries with the highest percentage of women in the workforce. And this is possible since most children are taken care of in early childhood education and care, actually 98% of the three to five years old. But you could of course also flip the coin and argue that this is a necessity uh, due to the high level of taxation. You simply need two income if you want to, to have a certain living standard. But it doesn't change the fact that we are a country with uh, both prosperity and welfare. The Danish welfare state has been developed over more than 100 years. It obviously did not emerge overnight and out of the blue. 
The other Nordic countries develop similar models, even though there are differences, of course, but all under a set of specific historical, cultural, and economic circumstances, all with quite homogeneous populations. Still, I imagine that some of you might find it hard to believe that our models is viable. Denmark is sometimes compared to a bumblebee. At first sight, it seems almost impossible that the bumblebee would be able to fly, but it does. And as I understand it, the main reason is that the bumblebee flaps harder with its wings than other insects. And, um, and perhaps that's explained why we are flying as well. I will give you, at least I will try to give you, four reasons why the Danish bumblebee can fly. First, a strong social contract has emerged. We pay high taxes, but we get something in return for ourselves and our families. There's also a strong willingness in Danish society to help those who cannot help themselves through the taxes. So most Danes actually appreciate the welfare state. There's a broad consensus behind this idea. It matters that people in general trust each other and the, and the government. According to Transparency International, as you just mentioned, Denmark is the least corrupt country in the world. And this is important when we ask our citizens to pay half of their salaries in taxes. They know the money will return in the form of services and safety. Second, we have a broad political consensus regarding a possible economic policy. We often find political compromises across party lines. For decades, there has been a political will to ensure economic responsibility and preserve a balance between the welfare state and our market economy. And third, we have a flexible labor market. Companies can easily hire, and perhaps even more important, fire workers. It allows employers to quickly change and, and reallocate resources. At the same time, we provide the employee with a fair degree of security. This approach is often referred to as flexicurity, flexibility and security. And last but not least, our climate for doing business. Denmark is a small, open economy where enterprises compete freely on the European and, and global market. We are part of the European single market, which given us access to, to a lot of customers. And I think 500,000 Danish workplaces are totally related to the fact that we are part of the European single market. It might surprise some of you, but the Heritage Foundation finds that our economic freedom is at the level of the United States. And Denmark is a good place to invest. Forbes last year named Denmark the best country in the world for business. And two days ago, the World Bank rated Denmark the best country in Europe for doing business, and number three in the world after Singapore and New Zealand. And I am sure that the World Bank know about our taxes and they have taken that into account. And Copenhagen has been ranked the best place to live. The city is green, tolerant, and, and open to the world. So I hope you might consider including Copenhagen in your career plans. You are definitely most welcome. I would like to uh, be very clear in this. I am a strong supporter of the Nordic model. I am myself a product of the welfare state. 
I was born and, and raised with the opportunities of Danish society within easy reach. I grew up in what I would call a lower middle class family. My mom uh, left school after only seven years. Uh, I became the first in my family to leave school with a high school diploma, the first to study uh, and graduate from a university. And, and such social mobility is not uncommon in my generation in Denmark. Denmark and the other Nordic countries are different from other OECD countries by having high income mobility between generations. So I actually think it's pretty easy to, to achieve the American dream in, in Denmark. One of my key political goals is to preserve the possibility of social mobility. The Danish society is based on the principle of equal opportunity, a principle we must cherish and preserve. But it will only be possible if we confront the challenges we are facing. And clearly, our welfare state is faced with challenges. The global economy is changing. Growth in Asia and other regions is a very positive development. More than one billion people have been lifted out of poverty. But at the same time, globalization challenges countries which already have a high living standard, like Denmark. We are challenged by low salaries and high skills in countries like China and India. We are challenged by jobs moving to other countries and, and by the fact that labor and capital more easily can move to where taxes are low. In sum, globalization increases the demands on us as a small, open, market-oriented economy. And we have to be honest about the problems related to the Nordic model. In a society with high taxes, we have to be very conscious about the incentives to work. In a society with a high level of social security, we have to pay special attention to the incentives among lower income groups to take a job. In a welfare state with a large public sector, we continuously have to make sure that we do not undermine the sense of personal responsibility and, and citizenship. And in a country where salaries are high and the distribution of, of wealth is high, we are challenged by foreign labor willing to work for salaries that are low in a Danish context. And my answer to all these different challenges is reforms, reforms, reforms. We have no choice but to reform our society in order to preserve the welfare state and the public support for it. We have to reform the public sector. The answer cannot always be send more money. Part of the answer is higher efficiency. We continuously have to find better ways to do things. For instance, ways, ways to use digital uh, technologies. And we have to bring about reforms which support a strong and effective public sector. We need more jobs in the private sector in order to afford our welfare system. And I want to improve our educations to improve the qualifications of the workforce. And I want to reduce taxes on labor, especially uh, labor with lower incomes. Not, of course, to the level in the United States, that's unrealistic, but, but lower 
than in Denmark today. I want to improve our competitiveness, reduce taxes for business, remove red tape. Because without enough private sector jobs, the economy, the economy will, will lose its cohesion. For decades, we, have, we were used to the economy moving forward and upward. It was as if progress and growth was a kind of law of nature. But it wasn't. It was something we achieved through our actions. We improved education. We improved productivity. Similarly, we must foster progress by ourselves in the years to come. So, we haven't achieved all our goals. I think we have a good Scandinavian Nordic model, but we definitely also have some challenges, and I will be um, happy to discuss uh, these challenges in, in details with you when I conclude my opening remarks. But before doing so, I will, uh, I will, I will introduce a, a global perspective as well. Because in a global perspective, we must come together in handling the challenges that we are all facing. And here I'm particularly thinking on the climate challenge. Denmark hopes for an ambitious international climate agreement at COP21 in Paris. The European Union has already committed to a reduction target of at least 40% in 2030. Strong commitments to long-term global reductions are important. And I'm glad to see the US show leadership on, on this agenda. I'm pleased to be informed that President Obama have decided to, to join the summit in, in Paris, uh, and the Chinese president have made the, the same decision. That creates some kind of hope. An ambitious agreement will send a strong signal to the private sector that low emissions are the future. We need a boost in private investments in climate technologies the coming years. And Denmark and the Nordic countries are well known as global frontrunners on green technologies. Since the 70s, Denmark's economy has doubled while we have kept energy consumption stable and reduced CO2 emissions. In 2020, half of Denmark's electricity consumption will come from wind, up from almost 40% last year. Denmark has taken the lead on developing offshore wind farms over the last decades. I hope offshore wind energy will also soon take off in the United States. The Danish company Dong Energy is now exploring a multi-billion dollar offshore wind investment in Massachusetts from a newly established office in, in downtown Boston. Climate change increases the risk of flooding and storms as New York experienced just three years ago. After the Hurricane Sandy, Danish architect Bjarke Inges Group, BIG, won the bid to protect Lower Manhattan from future devastation. That is being done through a protective ribbon around Lower Manhattan. It shields buildings from flood and, and, and storm surges. In a 10 miles U-shape of parkland, bicycle routes and public open spaces to camouflage, raised barriers and deployable walls. This is quite 
a creative and innovative way of developing Manhattan. Urban planning that encouraging cycling with inspiration from Copenhagen as the most bicycle-friendly city in the world. Many are quite surprised to learn that half of the citizens in our capital, Copenhagen, bike to work every day. Come rain, come shine, we bike. This is part of who we are. So to sum up, uh, Denmark is a modern welfare state with high taxes and equal access to core welfare. And we are a highly competitive economy with strong businesses and, and enterprises. We are actively facing globalization, sizing its opportunities. But Denmark and the Nordic model also faces several challenges. We, most, we, we must continuously reform and, and adjust our model and keep a global outlook on trends and opportunities. My main point here tonight is that it is extremely important to continuously adapt and improve. This goes for all walks of life and for all countries. The Nordic countries have much to offer the world in terms of innovative and green solutions, and we are already doing it here in Boston, in New York, in the rest of the United States, and in the rest of the world. I hope that these observations and reflections can inspire you and your future undertakings. And by that, I will conclude and say thank you, and I'm looking forward to a Q&A session. Thank you so much. Do you want me to stand? Yes, you can stand there. Thank you very much, Prime Minister. Now, as customary in the forum, indeed uh, a requirement of the forum, we'll have uh, time for question and answers. For those of you who have not uh, been to a forum event, a question at the forum has three components. First, the questioner must identify him or herself. Second is uh, one per customer, only one question per person, no speeches. And third rule is that questions end with a question mark. First question to you, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Sita Gofard. I'm a 2015 graduate uh, of Harvard College, and um, it's a real honor to hear you speak, Mr. Prime Minister. Thank you so much for coming all the way. Um, as someone who is a European citizen and spent most of his life growing up in Europe, uh, one of the things that really concerns me uh, about the, the European Union is its stance towards uh, the refugee crisis going on right now. Yeah. Um, I know your government recently has taken a particularly uh, tough approach to refugees. I wanted to ask you about that, especially since you did just describe Copenhagen, uh, Denmark as being um, open to all people of the world, which it should be, and which in many ways it really is. Um, but recently, I've read that your government has, um, for example, put out ads in Lebanon and in other places explicitly telling immigrants and, and refugees not to come to, uh, not to, come to Denmark, um, and that you know, they would receive a cut in social welfare and, and social benefits, um, and that families could not be reunited after one year, uh, until one year, um, and that asylum seekers did not receive asylum would be quickly deported. So I wanted to ask you about that. Does Denmark and does your government have any plans to loosen up rules um, facing immigrants and refugees who desperately do need a home uh, in the European Union? Um, and if not, I guess, what are your other plans to deal mm. with the crisis? Thank you. Thank you so much. It's indeed a very, very good question because what's going on in Europe right now is, is definitely a challenge. I mean, and uh, of course, we must do more about the root causes, the war in Syria, 
we need to call upon US, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran to find a political solution because without a political solution, you will see a huge pressure on, on, on Europe. We are talking millions of people. And uh, honestly speaking, uh, Europe can't you know, absorb millions and millions and millions. So we have to strike a kind of balance and, um, and we have to do many things at the same time. Um, we have invested heavily in, uh, in aid in the neighboring countries. We are among uh, the countries in the world which uh, offer most uh, humanitarian assistance per capita. Um, and of course we also have to welcome refugees in our country and we do so. Last year Denmark was listed number two um, per capita receiving Syrian refugees. And talking refugees in general from other countries as well, Afghanistan, Eritrea, etc., we were number we were, we were number five in, in, in Europe. So I, I think it's right to say that we take our fair share, um, and we will continue to do so. But it's also important to realize that what's going on now is something we haven't seen before, and we need to make a distinction between refugees from the war, whom we are going to protect, and people who are migrants, who, who want a better life. And I truly understand that if you are from North Africa or Afghanistan, even from a secure, safe area, you have a dream of a better life. But that's too much of a burden. So, so we need to find solutions where we can distinguish refugees from, from migrants. And, and that is the Danish approach. And, and you can say that it looks a bit tough from outside, but, but it's not. It's actually so, I would say, or I would argue, that it's a more realistic approach. And being one who have participated in negotiations in the European Union for the last couple of weeks, I must say that the debate in general is becoming more and more realistic because Europe realized that of course we need to stand up for our values and we need to welcome refugees, but we also uh, must understand that we can't absorb potentially uh, 10, 10 millions. Um, so therefore we have to do a lot at the same time, invest more in the neighboring countries, invest more in a political solution and of course also accepting refugees, but doing it in a way that make it possible for us to integrate those people in our society. And that's why we have, as you described it, uh, made some cuts in, in, in benefits, but from a very high level. So if you compare Denmark with other countries, I think you will find that we, we treat people in an acceptable way. Uh, if you come to Denmark as a refugee, you will receive the same grant as a, as a student. And the idea behind this is being a student is not a permanent situation. I mean, one day you will hopefully finalize your studying and, and get a job. And being a refugee is in the same category because 
Hopefully there will be peace, and then you should return. And if there's not peace around the corner, then you should be a part of our society, then you should work. So we want to give people who uh, are given asylum in Denmark a strong incentive to learn our language and to join our, our labor market. That's the idea behind what, what we have done. Hi, my name is Charlotte. I'm a student at the college. Thank you so much for being here, Mr. Prime Minister. Um, my question is, what could the U.S. learn from Denmark about secularism and the balance between political correctness and healthy debate around religion? Thanks. Well, it's not definitely not up to, to me to, to, to define what other countries can, can, can learn from, from Denmark. I, I, can, I can share our experiences, and, 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 and then it's up to other countries to to adapt whatever they can, they can adopt. <laughs> yes, the gentleman on the balcony. Good afternoon, Lars, Herr Statsminister. Good afternoon. <laughs> My name is uh, Jens Christian Rasmussen, and I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. So, in your introduction, you spoke about the social contract. Yeah. And my question relates to the future of the welfare state in the light of policies and rhetoric that increase stigma in our country. Um, right now, there's a trending idea across Europe, uh, the idea of welfare chauvinism, which some people call it, um, the idea that welfare services should be restricted to our own. And obviously, the Danish People's Party uh, uh, can be seen as one of the exponents of this idea, but to some extent, uh, some might say also your own party. Um, so this includes restricting services to natives, uh, uh, not including immigrants, uh, but also driving a wedge in between the employed and the unemployed, increasing stigma on the unemployed. So with this trend going of increasing stigma on immigrants and un unemployed and other groups, how will we make sure that Mr. Jensen will be able to, will speak to Mr. Mohammed, uh, how will we make sure that they have an idea, that they have shared interests, uh, shared values in our society, uh, and how can we re-strengthen this social contract as the foundation of our welfare society? Well, I think the social contracts uh, is based on, on, on the fact that we all contribute. Um, and, and that's why I, I, I argue so hard that we need more Danes to participate. Uh, it's not about stigmatizing anyone at all. It's about giving people incentive to work. We have a very generous uh, uh, welfare system and uh, high level of... Uh, subsidies, etc. And, and for that reason, you will find that the gap between, uh, between taking a, a work at a low income level or just living on social benefits are not very big. And it's, it, it's my intention, I'm very open about this, to, to increase this gap, or you could put it another way, to create a bigger incentive. And it, it, and it, this coin has 
two sides, so to speak. We uh, have decided to put a, a cap on what you can receive uh, from the from the from the from the state, and more importantly, we have decided to cut taxes on low income because. If we want a sustainable model, giving also the demographic challenges in our uh, society, uh, our birth rate is too low, uh, we live longer, and if we, if we want to be sustainable in the long run so we can afford um, public schools, so we can afford that we invest among the few European countries the re recommended amount of money in, in research, etc. We need to have a higher. Um, we, we need we need to have more participation in our society, and and that's also my view on on, on immigrants. I welcome uh, immigrants. I mean, I consider Denmark as an open country. We can't we can't keep up. We can't be competitive in the long run unless we accept foreigners to study and work in Denmark. But it is important that they participate. And, 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 and therefore, we also need to give people who have chosen Denmark an incentive to actually become an integrated part of our society. That's my point of view. Over here. Uh, hi, good evening, Your Excellency. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Samir, and I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. My question, I think, revolves around the same themes that have been asked so far. It's basically around the applicability of your welfare state to other countries around the world. I know you're not in a position to tell people what, what they should do, as you said, but uh, um, specifically I want to ask you about uh, the Middle East. A lot of those countries have been uh, pushed by the Arab Spring to rewrite, rewrite their social contract, and those who haven't, who haven't so far will be very soon, it's like my home country, Algeria, for instance. I want to ask you what are the what are the key lessons that for you they can take out of the out of your model to rewrite their social contract. Well, if I should if if I should underline just one uh, thing, it will be the social mobility. I think that's the most important part and the uh, uh, biggest lesson you can you can learn not only from Denmark from but from the Scandinavian countries. Um, I guess the situation in many of those country, countries who witnessed the uh, Arabic uh, Spring, uh, and there have been this setback, is the fact that many, many youngsters are, you know, have lost confidence in, in, in the future. And that's actually a, a part of the explanation why we see this uh, stream of immigration to, 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 to Europe. And if we should bring back hope to, uh, to young people in the Arabic world or in Africa or whatever, I think uh, social mobilization should be a part of that answer. Uh, I don't think you can adapt the Danish model, but, but what really changed the situation in Denmark in a long-term perspective is the fact that we gave everybody access to education. I, I used my own example. I mean, if I, I'm, I'm 51, if I had been, you know, 75, uh, I would not have had the same access to education as I actually had. 
So uh, finding ways to to uh, whether 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 it's grants or loans uh, or whatever to to make it possible for youngsters to reach out for education, I think that's the most most important thing. Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. My name is Chris Mirasola. I'm a first year student at the Kennedy School. My question returns to climate change, which you mentioned earlier, and particularly uh, Danish policy in the Arctic. So in, in recent years with climate change, we've seen a strategic shift in the Arctic with increased tensions and, and increased competition. Um, I'm wondering what you see as the geopolitical future for the Arctic and how you think as a global community and particularly as Arctic states, we can move towards lessening these tensions? Well, um, it's actually the only positive thing about the climate change, that it creates new possibilities in the Arctic. Um, uh, but as you just mentioned, it also creates a more sensible situation. And I think it's important to keep the Arctic as a non-militarized um, zone. Uh, and for that reason, uh, we participate in the, in the Arctic Council, which is, you know, the platform for all decision, or at least should be the platform for all decision regarding the Arctic. Um, is that an answer or not? I'm not quite sure, uh, but it is, goes without saying that some superpowers could have certain ideas about uh, Arctic and, 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 and we should try to avoid that anyone, uh, you know, have a kind of monopoly in, 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 in the Arctic region. And, and, and for that reason, we should cooperate. And we actually have created this forum, which is quite unique. Uh, US and Russia and Denmark and other countries sitting around the same table. Uh, with, the with the same kind of, 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 of influence. Um, and I think the world community should, should gain whatever is possible from the fact that we now have access due to the reduce of the ice cap. Um, it's not something which is basically positive, but it's because it's, it's linked to the fact that, that we have a climate crisis, but nevertheless. Uh, thank you. My name is Jun Dong. I'm a first-year MPB student here in Kennedy School. My question is that nowadays in, uh, in, the, in the world, there are a lot of emerging countries like China is facing a, its transition from uh, uh, making governments smaller but uh, make the private sector uh, importance larger. But you also mentioned that in Denmark, you are going to expand the role of private sector. So my question is like, how do you balance the expanding uh, private sector and the potential expanding or largening of the social inequality. Yeah, you could say that we are in an opposite position than China because we have to, we don't have to reduce the public sector, but but in percentage, we should have a bigger private sector in our in our country if we want to be a sustainable country in the long run. I think one way to do it uh, is to have a much closer cooperation between the private and the public sector. Um, if you if you if you look at 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 the world, 
these days, and, and if you look at some of the emerging economies, they are actually to some extent facing the same, same challenges as, as we did like 15 years ago. Women entering the labor market, you need childcare systems. Uh, in some countries, you have the tradition of kids, uh, parents, grandparents living together. Um, if the working ratio rise, uh, you can't do that in the future, so you need elderly care systems, etc. And that's actually uh, sectors where I think the Scandinavian countries have, have something to offer. But our challenge is the fact that all these sectors are run by the public sector. So uh, when I travel abroad and I, I meet political leaders from some of the emerging countries and they ask me, could you please help us? Could you uh, establish an elderly center or a hospital center or whatever in, in, in our country? I can't deliver it uh, because it's in, in, in our country it's, it's run by the public sector. So I think one way to strike a better balance in my society is to be more open for uh, public-private uh, partnerships, etc. We could, at the same time, uh, create a more uh, efficient system back home, uh, more value for money, and at the same time, uh, create new export opportunities. Uh, that could be at least a part of the solution. One example of that is the Danish company FATC, which is responsible for uh, pre-medical service in our society, and it's now, I guess, uh, active in more than 45 countries around the world. And it's basically based on the fact that they, for more than 100 years, have had a kind of monopoly in Denmark, uh, offering these kind of service, services paid by the taxpayers to the Danish state. So I think that's an example which could be followed in the future. My name is Amelia San Miguel, and I'm a senior at the college. And I think you just touched on my question a little bit with this. But earlier in your speech, you mentioned that uh, Denmark is constantly trying to create more incentives for people to work. Um, and I'm wondering, what are specific public policies that promote these incentives? And which of them do you find to be more effective? Well, first of all, I think there's many good reasons to work, and it's not all about economics uh, incentives, because if that was the fact, I mean, then we would probably have a problem in a, in a, in a country as, as, as Denmark, giving the high level of taxations. Um, why do we work? We work to be a part of a, a, a working environment, colleagues, etc. But it doesn't change the fact that we also want to, you know, achieve something from it. Uh, and the problem nowadays in Denmark is that in certain specific situations, if you don't have any education, if you go for the minimum salary, uh, there will not be... Of course, there will be some extra coins in your pocket, but it's, it's not a huge amount. So I think the main... Uh, way to tackle that problem is to it's to uh, it's to give uh, you know uh, uh, to lower taxes on people with low incomes, and that's what we have intentions to do. Um, we have started this autumn 
by, as I explained before, putting a, a cap on what you in total can receive from, from the state. Uh, we don't cut uh, the social benefits, um, but in addition to social benefit, you also can uh, receive housing assistance, uh, uh, child benefits, etc., etc. And if you accumulate all that and compare it to a situation where you, you work and where you could lose some of these additional benefits, the difference is very, very small. So we have decided to put a cap, and the next step will be to cut taxes to ensure that we create a situation where all Danes achieve something extra if they work. Hi, uh, thank you very much for coming here, Mr. Prime Minister. Uh, my name is Zanara, I'm from the college as well. Um, you spoke recently about education being a priority in the welfare state of Denmark, um, but last year in June there was an article published by the Business Insider that stated that a lot of students were not maximizing new opportunities in the fields of engineering, maths, technology, and science, and whether, again, hearkening back to insensitive incentives, whether public policy-wise, if there's going to be restructuring of incentives in terms of education, and what the implications would be in terms of productivity and job outlook, and how that would um, resonate with the economic distribution of wealth and caps in terms of taxes as well. We're actually looking into this uh, right now because we need to, to, um, to, to make sure that we have the right dimension in our, in our educational system so that we take uh, job outlooks into account. Um, we don't have uh, this demand-driven uh, university system due to the fact that, uh, you know, it's all paid by the public sector. So um, uh, it is, to a certain extent, a political decision which kind of university uh, studies we, uh, we, we offer. And, uh, and we have this dream, it's actually not a dream, it's a goal, that 50% um, of all youngsters should take a, a, a further education, 95 should take a, a, a higher youth uh, a, a education at a high youth education level, and we have almost achieved that. And now we need to take the next step where we also look into the quality of the education, not only the quantity, but also look into what kind of education do people actually choose. So we choose something for the future and not the past. And, and we are working on this right now. Welcome to uh, Cambridge. My Hi. name is Anne Mone. I am a Danish non-degree student here at the Kennedy School. So Denmark has indeed been uh, giving quite the attention in the US uh, lately, and fortunately it's not just because we're publicly uh, desiccating lions and giraffes, <laughs> but also because of our, of our welfare system. But one of the reasons that I sometimes have been very proud of our country receiving international attention has been when we've been identified as a global front runner and a country that takes upon us responsibility in terms of severe challenges as poverty and inequality. And therefore, it's also been very worrisome for me to follow that your government has deliberately chosen 
to lower the foreign aid contribution of our country with 340 million US dollars on the official law that is being uh, discussed at the moment in our country. Um, I know that it is still a very high contribution that we have in Denmark and we are indeed still living up to the UN's dem demand or the UN's goal of a 0 0.7 uh, part of GDP that we're contributing with, but it's still a decrease from 1% and my question is, if a country that is as wealthy as Denmark and has the history of solidarity that we do in Denmark cannot be the ones who will increase the bar uh, for what we achieve in terms of eradicating poverty and our contribution to this, who can we really depend on? Um, I understand that we're still doing a lot, but we should be with the ones setting the bars even higher. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, the fact is that we are among only five countries in the entire world which live up to the uh, to the development uh, assistance goals uh, defined by, by UN. It's only five countries in the entire world, and the goal is 0.7% of GNI, and we deliver that. Um, and if you look, uh, you, you could also look at, you could also, you could also look at the figures uh, from, from other dimensions, and, and, uh, and from my memory, an average stain pay double the amount of money as an average German or an average uh, Frenchman. Uh, so this is actually something I'm proud of. But I must also openly say that, and I mentioned that in my opening remarks as well, we are also challenged. I mean, uh, and we need to strike a balance, and, and politics is also about uh, prioritizing. And, and, and I want... I want to spend more on, 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 on health care, for instance. I want to, as I have mentioned several times, to lower taxes on people with low incomes in our society. And I, I can't sp spend money twice. So that's why we have defined that we will stick to the UN goals. Uh, and we will be in this uh, exclusive family of just five countries. And then, of course, we also need to discuss how we spend the money because it goes for uh, development assistance uh, as it goes for all other kinds of, of public spendings that it can not only be a question of how much do you spend. Uh, and I think if we should really achieve something, we should not only look into the amount of money spent, we should also look into uh, the kind of cooperation we can make between Europe and developing countries. A few years ago, I had the honor to chair an Africa commission uh, within our government together with African leaders. And, and number one at their list um, wasn't eight, it was market access. It was, how can you help us to, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, build up capacity? Uh, we just touched upon that subject uh, a moment ago. Uh, how, can, how, can, how can we assist them in actually developing a sustainable African model? And it's not only about development assistance in terms of money. It's also about market access, etc. 
So beyond the fact that Denmark is among only five countries in the world which actually deliver what we have decided in UN, you will also find that Denmark is a strong voice within Europe and, and, and in other international uh, arenas advocating that we need a closer uh, private sector cooperation between our part of the world and the developing world. Thank you for coming tonight, Mr. Prime Minister. My name is Jesse Shulman. I'm a senior in social studies here at the college. In America right now, a lot of people are angry about unlimited political spending since 2010, the Citizens United Agreement. Now, I was surprised to recently find that in Denmark, there's actually quite open political spending, something we don't hear much, um, certainly not from, from <laughs> Bernie Sanders. And as you said, they're still uh, number one in, in anti-corruption. So part of my question is, certainly there are some differences like a smaller um, election campaign, and you can't spend on quite the same things. But what's your perspective and maybe special insights from the inside of what makes it work for Denmark, open political spending? Well, it's basically because it's a part of our tradition. I mean, uh, it, 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 that's the way we have acted uh, since we, we didn't invent democracy, but, but since 1840 or something like that, when we uh, established the, the kind of, 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 of system we have nowadays. And I think it's also due to the fact that, that Denmark is a very small country. I mean, um, when you're only 5.7 millions, um, it's difficult to hide things. I mean, um, it's a small, open, very transparent system. We also have, uh, it's, it's easy for journalists, for instance, to, to, to get access to, to, to documents within the public sector. We don't have a system where we have political appointed civil servants, for instance. That's perhaps also a part of the explanation. So when we have a, a change in government, it's just the ministers and not the entire system. So our political system is affordable. We don't, we don't, you don't, we don't, we don't need to, to, to raise money to, 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 to run elections for a lot of positions in our society. It's only, you know, once every four years, the parliamentary election, uh, one uh, times every four years, municipality election. So we don't have the U.S. tradition for, you know, election, 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 ongoing election uh, campaign. I, I think perhaps that and the fact that we have um, non-political appointed civil servants could, could be a part of the explanation. Do, do you have any idea about how much money was spent in the last general? You know, I, it's a hard... In Denmark? We can find out from... Yeah, you, perhaps you could tell me, because uh, if I ask in my own organization, they would say that we spend too much, but uh, that, that, that's not an answer. Thank you so much for staying up so late with us, Mr. Prime Minister. Uh, my name is Jared Perlow. I'm a freshman at the college, and I just wanted to press you a little bit more about the migrant crisis currently yeah. going on, if I may. Um, I think Denmark's an amazing country, certainly very close to being a perfect country, but there's still a little bit more room for improvement. And you mentioned before you talked about, uh, and another uh, question was about the cuts to the refugees. Um, 
that has taken place in terms of the benefits. And by my calculation, a little bit of research, that was actually a 45% cut going from the full benefits to that of the students. And you said a lot about a social contract, and I'd say that for a little bit of background, I've been very fortunate in my circumstances, having been born in America, having been exposed to amazing opportunities that have allowed me to end up at the college. And I'd argue that to some extent, what separates me from a refugee currently trying to just hold on to what they can of their life and their livelihood in the Middle East is just a matter of, of birth lottery. And I'd say we're all both humans, what really separates us. So when a migrant comes to Denmark, for example, and then is only given 45% of what the full Danish citizen would be given, um, it seems to me that like that's not true equality. And you also mentioned a little bit before that Europe is starting to become more realistic with its benefits. And obviously you can't absorb tens and tens of millions of people and it has to, the cause of that exodus must be sorted out as well. But I'd say if the uh, emerging realism in Europe is one that doesn't recognize equality, isn't there something inherently wrong with that, especially as you emphasize a social contract? Well, of course, now I could decide to return the question to you as being a U.S. citizen. I mean, I mean, we are many who have a responsibility for the situation in Syria. Uh, I c cannot remember the number of Syrian refugees in the U.S. Uh, <laughs> but... But it's important for me to say that we don't, we, don't, we, we don't draw a line between being a Danish citizen or not. That's, that's not the fact. We, we, the system in Denmark is that you, have, you, you, you must live in Denmark for a certain period of time before you have full access to benefit on, 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 on this uh, level. So, for instance, someone who have moved from Denmark to study abroad and who have stayed in the US or another country for some years and returned to Denmark, they will be treated exactly the same way. And, and the idea is simply the fact that you should contribute to the society in order to achieve benefits on the full scale, so to speak. I also think it's fair to say that if you, if you are a refugee fleeing from, 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 from a war, it is about being treated well, to find a safe place where you can raise your children, where they can attend school, where you have access to healthcare system, etc. Uh, and our system, if you compare the Danish system with most other countries in Europe, as you, you, you will find that we uh, that we uh, that we offer um, the kind of assistance which is reasonable, bearing in mind that we have to solve two challenges at the same time. We need to give uh, a room for the refugees, but we also need to protect is perhaps a, a, a wrong word to use, but we also need to bear in mind that we should be a sustainable society in the long run. And the figures uh, speaks for themselves. We have a problem about integration in our society. If we look at the refugees who arrived two years ago, it's only 10% of them who actually work. If we look at refugees uh, 
who arrived within a span of years, five, ten years or something like, something like that, it's perhaps a quarter. And if we look at those with a non-Western background who have arrived in Denmark within the last generation, last 30 years or something like that, it's about half of them who is actually working. It's an active part of our labor, labor force. And these numbers are too low. Among, among Danes, it's 75, 80% or something like that. So we have to find a key to ensure that those people we welcome in Denmark are you know, getting integrated in our society. Because we have, as I mentioned, this social contract. So, I mean, if we should tell our people to pay high taxes, we must also ensure that everybody participates. And, 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 and that is a delicate balance we, 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 we try to achieve. Hi, good afternoon, welcome and thousand thank. My name is Sydney Stouts, and I'm a graduate student at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy just up the hill. Um, with the UNFCCC COP21 in mind in Paris in just a couple weeks, can you speak to Denmark's initiatives to mitigate and adapt to climate change in the long term and how Denmark will contribute to the EU's expected 40% reduction contributions? Yeah, I can, I can easily do that. We, we, we are part of the European Union, and, and the European U Union has offered or decided that we'll go for this 40% target in, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in 30. Uh, the Danish um, part of that is even bigger. I mean, we have made, uh, we, we took a decision in 2012, a very broad political agreement, and, and the implication of that will be that Denmark in 2020 will reduce its CO2 emission by 37%, which should be compared to the EU goal 40 in 2030. Uh, we have a discussion going on. Some uh, parties in Denmark think that we should try to achieve 40 in 2020. I think 37 in, in, in 2020 is ambitious enough, given the fact that the rest of Europe will achieve, you know, 40, 10 years later. So, of course, we have a, we have a, we have a discussion. But I guess it's right to say from an international perspective that uh, taking these um, discussions into account doesn't change the fact that Denmark actually contributes uh, and, uh, and, and to some extent more than many other European countries. Um, and, and for that reason, I hope we can achieve an agreement in Paris. Um, it will definitely not be ambitious enough. Uh, I guess at this stage, 140, 150 countries or something like that around the world have uh, claimed their uh, targets. And if you accumulate them, uh, we, will not, we will not reach the two degrees uh, goal. So, um, bearing that in mind, I think the solution in Paris should be that we make a dynamic agreement where we accept whatever we can achieve now and then 
invent a kind of uh, evaluation tool so that we can you know, come back, for instance, every five years or something like that in order to, to push ambitions a, a, a bit far. Thank you very much. It looks like we've run out of time. I'm delighted that we've had such a rich conversation ranging across a large number of public policy issues, from immigration to demographic change to the debate between taxes versus social benefits to foreign aid and global security, and finally to the climate change issue and to immigration and the challenges that that poses. And so I think what a lot of people will remember from this evening is something about those policy debates. Uh, which are indeed rich. What I'll remember, I think, from this evening is that a special part of the Bumblebee is your theme about the need for continuous reform and adaptation and improvement. And part of the remarkable thing about Denmark's democracy is that it's the kind of democracy in which you can have this robust conversation with different points of view and move forward. We're never going to settle the right public policy answer on these issues. They're extremely complicated. But what's important as a society is that a society be able to have that conversation and then move powerfully forward into the future. So with that, I want to offer a big thanks to our guest, Prime Minister Rasmussen, for joining us. I want to thank all of you for your extremely thoughtful questions, and I hope that you are able to join us for the future events this semester and on into the next year. Thank you very much. Thank you.